It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode contains discussions of murder and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Chandra and Joyce flip through channels on a small television. It was the late shift at the video hut. Even as the new millennium came and went, people still rented VHS tapes, at least in Fayetteville, North Carolina. It was just another average night in the back office of the video store as Chandra and Joyce split a fast food special while alternating between the security video feed and late night television. Suddenly, the hut employees saw a woman banging on the front door. They remained frozen, even as this person rushed inside to the counter, looking for them. Her hysteria was almost frightening. Then, Chandra saw the blood, and Joyce noticed this woman wasn't wearing any shoes. She was in trouble. Bad trouble. The girls rushed out to help. The woman babbled in shock, incoherent. Eventually, Michelle Fear finally got her message across. Her husband had just been shot. Someone needed to call 911. From the looks of her, though, Chandra and Joyce both had the same dark thought. It was already too late. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. It all began with a computer. At the end of 1999, 29-year-old Michelle Thier logged onto a forum for romantic liaisons. There, she met 28-year-old John Diamond, and the two began an affair. After years of sacrificing her own interests for her husband Marty's career in the Air Force, Michelle fell into a cycle of lies and deceit, born from the desire to finally take control of her own life. However, Diamond's entire self-worth soon became predicated on Michelle. As he planned their future, 
she got cold feet. Michelle broke off their affair in November 2000, sending diamonds spiraling into a vortex of self-hatred and anger. But then Michelle made contact with Diamond again on December 16th, with horrifying news. Marty had raped her. Or so she alleged. Over the last year, Michelle had developed quite a lying streak ever since logging onto the web and constructing a second parallel life. Here, she could be who she wanted to be and say what she wanted to say. Her lies became truth and her second life became the only one that mattered. Before I continue with the psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. Researchers have found empirical evidence that neural pathways that facilitate lying grow in strength with repeated falsehoods. If a person has a motivation to uphold their initial lie, it becomes easier for them to tell another, and then another. There's no corroborating evidence of domestic violence in Michelle and Marty's marriage. With that and Michelle's history in mind, it's possible that Michelle lied to Diamond about the rape because it was a means to her own ends. Either way, fate took the wheel soon enough. On the night of December 17th, Michelle engineered for Marty to join her and her co-workers for a pre-holiday dinner. After dinner, Michelle requested that Marty return her to the office so she could pick up something she left behind. But while she was gone, it happened. Michelle heard the gunshots from inside, but by the time she rushed back to the garage, the assailant was gone, and Marty was unconscious, bleeding out on the ground. By 10.57 p.m., Michelle made it to the video hut, 200 yards away from her office. The police and paramedics were called. Half past 11 p.m., Police Sergeant Ralph Klinkscales arrived on the scene. To him, the parking garage seemed as ominous as a tomb. He approached the paramedics, hoping it wasn't too late. But he knew better. The paramedics weren't tense with action. They were moving slow. They were packing up. By the time Klinkscales reached them, he didn't need their report. He could tell that Marty Thier was long gone, dead at 31. But Klinkscale's job wasn't to mourn the loss of human life. It was to bring justice to an unjust death. He noted that Marty's body laid halfway in between the victim's Ford Explorer and the stairway up into the office building. Marty was dressed like a professional, prim and proper, except for a red and green Christmas tie around his neck. Klinkscales grimaced. This reminder of humanity came far too early for comfort. He sighed and turned off the emotional side of his mind. One bullet had pierced Marty's left forearm and lodged itself in his chest. Another went through his lower back. The third hit his right buttock, and the fourth his left thigh. This told Klinkscales some important information already. His attacker shot him from behind. Again, Klinkscale's eyes flashed between the staircase and the victim's car. 
the sergeant made the determination that Marty was most likely heading up those stairs when the first few shots were fired. But there was one more bullet, a shot to the back of the head, execution style, close range. This meant it was fired when Marty was already on the ground. It was an insurance shot. Whoever did this was focused, cold, and determined to make sure Marty Thier would not survive. Despite the grim nature of these clinical examinations, this part of the investigation was always his favorite. It was clean, logical, divorced from any paradoxical alibis and human complexity, but the simplicity never lasted. Other officers on the scene informed the sergeant that the witness was ready to speak with him. It was Marty Thier's wife, Michelle. She had found the body. Klinkscale sighed once again. No, he thought. The easy part was certainly over, now. Klinkscales joined Michelle in one of the police vehicles. She told the investigator about the timeline of the night and her fractured relationship with Marty. When it comes to detecting lies, UCLA psychologist Dr. R. Edward Geiselman has coached many police investigators. The work done by Geiselman and researchers like him has defined the tactics that detectives like Klinkscales utilized in the field. First of all, deceptive people often don't say much at all, lest they get caught in a lie. They are keen observers of their listeners, trying to detect if the lie is being bought or not. This means that their speech is usually slower than a truthful person's, as they are mentally multitasking, telling their lie, and observing its effects. Finally, a key sign of a liar is the use of sentence fragments over full statements. Someone hiding the truth often stops and starts in their testimony, as they put the pieces together themselves. But on the night of December 17th, Klinkscales detected none of these signals in Michelle's behavior. She just appeared to be a frazzled woman, in over her head. She assured the sergeant that she had no idea who might have wanted to harm her husband. She began to cry again, and Klinkscales sent her home. She needed rest, more than anything. That said, the Thiers and their acquaintances were his only leads, so Klinkscales dove into an interview marathon, he began with Thomas Harbin, Michelle's boss. He'd been at the pre-holiday dinner with the couple. Harbin knew that Michelle and Marty had hit a rough patch. He also knew that Michelle thought Marty had been unfaithful. Klinkscales pulled this thread, and Harbin admitted that Michelle had mentioned a paramour of her own. He thought his name was John, but did not know the surname. John was a soldier. Next... Klinkscales met with Michelle's co-worker Heidi, who was also at dinner the night of Marty's death. When asked about John, she confirmed that Michelle was having an affair. John had called the office the day before the dinner, and Heidi answered. John told her that Michelle was being abused by Marty and needed help. When Klinkscales returned to Michelle with his new information, she broke down and admitted to her affair with John Diamond. However, she also told Klinkscales that the romantic side of their relationship had ended. They were just friends, 
and there was no way he was involved in this. Diamond met Klinkscales on December 19th. He said he had seen news about Marty's death. He confirmed that he met Michelle online in early 2000, but he diverged from Michelle's story in one fascinating way. He told Klinkscales that the affair was still going on. Diamond would not relent on that point. He and Michelle were still very much in love. Diamond also started working on his own defense. Yes, he was a trained soldier, but he didn't own any guns. He stayed sharp with weapon practice at a local range. In fact, he'd gone to the gun range the day before. Klinkscales bristled at this. It meant any test for gunshot residue on John's hands was invalid. There was no way to prove if it came from target practice or murder. But Klinkscales still needed an alibi from Diamond. For that, the potential suspect turned to his estranged wife, Lourdes Diamond. He agreed to facilitate a meeting between her and Klinkscales on a conditional basis. The police wouldn't tell Lourdes about Diamond's affair with Michelle. When Klinkscales sat down with Lourdes the next day, she backed up all of Diamond's claims. Yes, the couple was separated, but Diamond often stayed over at her apartment in order to spend time with their child. On the night of the 17th, Diamond had been there, watching the film, The Patriot. The movie went until well after 9 p.m., and Diamond fell asleep on the couch. Lourdes wasn't sure if he went anywhere during the night, but when she woke up at 8 the next morning, she found Diamond sleeping on the floor in their child's bedroom. Lourdes's mother also confirmed this alibi. Klinkscales went away satisfied, but frustrated. Diamond immediately called Lourdes after this meeting and pressed for details. She told him it went well. She had repeated everything, just as John had instructed her to do. The Air Force held a memorial service for Marty a week after his death, bringing his mother to town. Klinkscales took this opportunity to meet with her personally. When Michelle learned about this, she called Klinkscales in a panic. She wanted to be there too. She was Marty's wife and deserved the same information as his mother. The full story, so far, was presented to them both. Marty was shot at the top of the stairwell and fell down. The fifth and final gunshot was delivered once he was already on the ground. They couldn't answer anything else. Michelle asked to meet with Klingscales one-on-one. She wanted to come fully clean. Intrigued, Klingscales allowed it. Michelle wanted Klingscales to see things from her perspective, so she risked opening up. She apologized for lying about her affair with Diamond. In the aftermath of Marty's death, she simply couldn't think straight and was afraid of putting Diamond in the spotlight. It was true that she had called Diamond on December 17th around 4 o'clock, but she was just asking for car repair advice. These were the type of matters where Diamond excelled over Marty. And, she conceded, she still liked speaking with John. Klinkscales fell back onto another one of the key tactics outlined by Dr. Geiselman in his research on liars and interrogation. It is often best to just sit back and give the silent treatment. 
a liar will need to fill the silence, and if the investigator is lucky, keep digging themselves deeper into the hole. Michelle played right into his hands. Michelle shifted in her seat. She tried to hide how uncomfortable she was, but Klinkscale's eyes never left her face, so she scrambled. Fine, she said. She had called Diamond once more on the 17th, during the dinner party with her co-workers. Klinkscales asked why. Michelle averted her eyes. She couldn't take his accusatory looks. She tried her best to construct a workable story, but her nerves got the better of her. She put on her most wounded look and told the detective that she had regretted bringing Marty and wanted to tell Diamond how much she wished he had been there instead. Klinkscales let Michelle stew. She waited, not willing to cede any more ground. Finally, she admitted what she had come here to say. A few days ago, Michelle met with Diamond. She asked him point-blank if he had anything to do with Marty's death. Diamond said he had not, and Michelle believed him. Klinkscales just stared, giving no hint of a reaction. Finally, he told Michelle to take a lie detector test, and he wanted her to meet with John again, wearing a wire this time. Michelle's face grew white. This meeting was supposed to have cleared up the police's doubts, but now she realized she just put a target on herself. She told Klingscales she would think about the offer, and then left the station. After this meeting, Sergeant Klingscales and the Fayetteville police would never talk to Michelle Thier about case details again, because she had become the case. Coming up, Michelle and John reunite in a desperate effort to either prove their innocence or hide the truth of their crimes before it's too late. Now back to the story. At the end of December 2000, 30-year-old Michelle Thier admitted she lied to police. It was the biggest mistake she had ever made. Now, the police weren't answering her questions for details on the ongoing investigation of her husband's murder, and even her own family was growing suspicious of her increasingly erratic behavior. She hired two attorneys for advice. They suggested she stay at home and keep quiet. So, of course, her next move was to invite John Diamond, her 28-year-old lover, to her house. Neighbors spotted an unknown car parked across the street at all hours of the night and once caught sight of a man entering the Thier home through the garage. Even with the weight of the law bearing down on them both, these two stayed together. Perhaps they thought it made them stronger, or perhaps there was something more psychological at work. When psychologists and criminologists research partners in crime, they often find one key dynamic in place, interdependence, much like a dysfunctional or codependent relationship that remains purely romantic, a criminal partnership follows a similar structure. There is a dominant force and a weaker follower. According to prison psychologist Al Carlisle, 
The dominant person needs the follower's total loyalty in order to validate him or herself. The subservient follower needs the power and authority of the dominant person, so he or she attempts to become that person's shadow and to mirror the dominant person's beliefs and ethics. Each receives justification from the other. In the case of Michelle Thier and John Diamond, the more interesting question was actually which one of these two was the dominant force. This person is often defined as having the true psychological control in the partnership. More often than not, it is the masculine partner that takes this position as they have the physical strength to back up their mental manipulations. And yet, despite Diamond's history as a hardened and trained soldier, Michelle truly controlled this entire dynamic. Diamond was desperate to keep this relationship afloat, even before Marty's death, and Michelle held the keys to that future. She dictated the terms of their relationship, deciding when to cut off contact and when to renew it. By telling Klinkscales about their continuing affair, Diamond had jabbed at control, but Michelle soon put him back into his place. In her mind, he was the one who directed the police interests their way, and now he owed her. Big time. She needed him to help end this. Meanwhile, Klingscales ordered a deeper dive into John Diamond's military records, hoping to find something incriminating in his past. Instead, they found something strange from the very recent present. John filed for an official divorce from Lourdes on December 18th, the day after Marty's death. Again, here was another detail that neither Diamond nor Michelle offered up in their own police interviews. Even stranger was the fact that Lourdes herself had not brought up this development. So the police returned to Diamond's estranged wife for one more round of questions, and this time they had no obligation to keep Diamond's confidence. Lourdes finally learned of the affair with Michelle, and her heart was broken. But Klingscales wasn't done. He had another trick up his sleeve. He followed up on his promise to Michelle and ordered a full examination of hers and Diamond's phone records during the months leading up to and following Marty's death. One call in particular stood out. On December 18th, Diamond called his friend Peyton Donald, an army sergeant. Klingscales sat down across from Peyton Donald on February 12th. Much like Diamond had, Donald appeared to be the consummate army professional. He was clean-shaven, well-built, and serious. But unlike Diamond, Klingscales could tell that Donald had an uneasy look about him. After years on the force, Klingscales knew that people had certain tells. There were the guilty, and then there were those who knew the guilty. The difference was that the second group of people were usually well-intentioned. What they were hiding or holding back wasn't necessarily due to some nefarious plot. Instead, they had accidentally brushed up against something much bigger than themselves and were finally realizing it. Klinkscale smiled to himself, making Donald even more uneasy. Yep, 
the seasoned investigator thought to himself. He's going to give us the keys to this mystery. And Clinkscales knew just where to begin. With weapons. Did Donald know if John Diamond owned a gun? Donald denied knowing anything of the sort. In fact, Diamond had recently asked to borrow Donald's own Smith & Wesson 9mm. Clinkscales observed something change in Donald's features as he spoke those words. The light bulb suddenly went off. Clinkscales pushed onward. When did John Diamond borrow this gun? Donald considered the question. Perhaps he considered even more than just the question. He thought about what his answer might mean for Diamond, the trouble it would bring his friend. But then a darker look of realization passed over Donald's features. It was Diamond who had dragged him into this in the first place. Clinkscales was familiar with this look too. It was the look of someone deciding to cut ties with the guilty and rejoin the just in the light of day. Clinkscales pushed just a little more, and Donald told him everything. That Diamond borrowed his gun on December 17th. That he returned it a few days later, but then borrowed it again in January. And that after this second favor, Diamond never returned the weapon. The man who sat across from the police sergeant was totally changed from when he first walked in. Now Donald wanted to know the truth about John Diamond as much as Clinkscales did. Clinkscales took the chance and asked Donald to call John again, requesting that he return the borrowed weapon. Donald made the attempt, but Diamond didn't answer. An hour later, John Diamond made a call to the military police out of Fort Bragg. Diamond claimed that someone had just broken into his car while it was parked at the Fort Bragg military base. They had stolen everything inside it, including a weapon, Peyton Donald's 9mm. Diamond said it was gone. It turned out that this was the culmination of Diamond and Michelle's plot, made in secret inside Michelle's home. But they didn't realize that the home itself had already been under surveillance since February 10th, two days prior to the supposed car robbery. Through this footage, police confirmed that Diamond's car was still parked outside of Michelle's house on February 12th, during the exact time period Diamond called the military police to report the theft. The window wasn't broken, and the car, with Donald's gun inside of it, was nowhere near Fort Bragg. In Clinkscale's mind, this was direct proof that Diamond and Michelle broke the car window themselves after Diamond made that claim to officials at Fort Bragg. He also supposed that they had done away with Donald's weapon themselves. Criminal masterminds, these two were not. Due to Diamond's status in the military and his direct lie to the military police itself, Fort Bragg CID took John Diamond into custody. A week passed, but John Diamond remained in military police custody as they collaborated with Fayetteville PD to sort out what exactly happened during the supposed car robbery. While Diamond kept his mouth shut and sweated it out behind bars, Michelle called Diamond's old friend Peyton Donald. 
The timing, of course, was strange. Michelle barely brought up Diamond's current predicament. Instead, she wanted to give Donald something, but she wouldn't name what it was she wanted to gift. The army sergeant agreed to a meetup. But Michelle never showed. She might have been afraid that Donald had been turned by the police. Maybe they asked him to wear a wire, as they tried to compel her to do against Diamond. While it was never confirmed by any party, it is most likely that Michelle hoped to return the gun that she and Diamond had pretended was stolen. Instead, the Smith & Wesson in question was forever lost. On February 20th, the military court denied John Diamond's bail. They officially charged him with transporting a weapon, adultery, conspiracy, and potential murder. He was deemed a flight risk and prepared for an Article 32 hearing. This preliminary hearing would decide whether or not there was enough evidence for a full court-martial. Forensics finally got back to Sergeant Klinkscales as well. The bullets from Marty's body matched two potential guns, both Smith & Wesson, the Model 639, or the Model 5906. Peyton Donald's missing gun was indeed a Model 5906. The truth seemed close at hand. Michelle retreated to her sister's home in Colorado, not daring to make contact with John Diamond. On April 22nd, Lourdes Diamond return to the police. Threatened with deportation and separation from her son, she came clean. On the night of December 17th, they had watched The Patriot, but halfway through the movie, Diamond received a call that he took in private. He left and didn't return until early in the morning, when Lourdes heard him using the washing machine. Diamond's alibi was gone. He had been the one to tell Lourdes to lie to the police. For Fayetteville PD and Fort Bragg's military police, this was the final straw. On April 24th, the Article 32 hearing came to a decision. Diamond was to be court-martialed on May 26th for the murder of Marty Thier. When we return... John Diamond's trial commences, and Michelle Thier makes one final, desperate attempt at freedom and a new life. Now back to the story. 29-year-old John Diamond's trial began on August 20, 2001. A military jury made up of four officers and two enlisted soldiers were set to decide his fate. Diamond pled guilty to transporting Donald's gun and adultery with Michelle Thier, but did not accept the charges of conspiracy and murder. The prosecution alleged that Diamond and Michelle collaborated in the murder of Marty Thier. There were records of their trip to Saba in October 2000. It seemed clear that they planned to run away together with the money gained from Marty's life insurance. Officer Klinkscales proved to be the key witness for the prosecution as he outlined the series of lies that led them to suspect Diamond in the first place. The defense pushed back. They stated that Michelle, and Michelle alone, killed her husband, Marty. There was absolutely no definitive evidence that Diamond was present on that night. 
They alleged that when Michelle went back upstairs to her office, it was to procure the gun. She came down, killed Marty, and then ran to the video hut. Diamond had nothing to do with it. Michelle Thier was a liar. She had lied to Marty about Diamond. She had lied to Diamond about Marty's abuse. And now she was lying about this. Simple. Meanwhile, Michelle Thier pled the fifth during the entire case. She wouldn't speak in defense of herself or Diamond. She refused to do anything to incriminate herself in any way. She wouldn't even meet Diamond's eyes in the courtroom. The trial only took four days. After three hours of deliberation by the jury, Diamond was found guilty on all counts. On August 29th, 29-year-old John Diamond was sentenced to life without parole at Leavenworth Prison. And Michelle Thier? She was innocent. For now, she was also in the wind. After staying with her sister in Colorado during most of 2001, Michelle's parents and siblings grew wary of her anxious behavior. In the fall of 2001, 30-year-old Michelle moved in with her grandmother in New Orleans. She was laying low with the only family member that wasn't asking questions. Yet. Meanwhile, Diamond was behind bars. His attorney wanted Michelle brought to justice. He spoke with Diamond privately and came to court with a proffer. Diamond would present a full statement on Marty's death in exchange for a sentence reduction. The justice system of North Carolina knew this might be the only chance to nail Michelle for her possible crimes, so they tentatively allowed Diamond to speak. This is what he had to say. On December 16, 2000, Michelle called him with the news that Marty had raped her. She was furious and told him she wanted to kill Marty. She just needed Diamond to get her a gun from Peyton Donald. When Diamond refused, she hung up on him. This is when Diamond called her office, seeking to speak with Michelle again, and ended up speaking with her coworker Heidi instead. Diamond couldn't stand not being in contact with Michelle so he met with her later in the day and agreed to call Donald. With the gun in his possession, Diamond and Michelle met on December 17th, the day before the murder. He gave her the gun. She told him to meet at her office at 11 p.m. that night. Diamond arrived early and waited for her. That's when he heard the gunshots. He rushed into the parking garage and found Michelle standing over Marty's corpse, gun in latex-covered hand. Diamond didn't hesitate. He took the gun from her and told her to call the police. In the morning, he fired the weapon at the gun range for his cover story. Michelle and Diamond later filed off the serial number from the weapon, took it apart, and secretly disposed of it across state lines. It was Michelle's idea to fake the break-in to Diamond's car. When this backfired and Diamond was apprehended, Michelle promised to marry him so they couldn't testify against one another. She also helped him hire an attorney. However, once the trial began, Michelle ceased all contact. He had not spoken with her in months. Why had he done all of this? Because he loved her, plain and simple. 
he would do anything for Michelle. Even after all of this, he was still hooked. When Klinkscales received word of this development, he knew what had begun nearly two years ago was finally reaching an end. The truth he had not detected in that first interview with the widowed woman in an empty garage had finally surfaced. Michelle Thier was indicted for her husband's murder on May 21, 2002. But there was one problem. The police couldn't find her. Michelle sat behind the wheel of a rickety car, with the clothes on her back and a quickly packed bag in the passenger seat. Her mind was surprisingly clear, given the circumstances. She was wanted for murder, but as the signs passed, first for Slidell, Louisiana, and then for Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Michelle remained calm. The horizon was clear now, her destiny tragic but faded. John Diamond had betrayed her, just as Marty Thier once had. For years, all she had done was try to help the men in her life. She gave up everything for them. She put herself in the crosshairs of the law. She did things that she didn't want to think about anymore. And yet after all that sacrifice, Michelle still had no home, no stability, and no love. Before, this revelation might have broken her, but now it fortified her. Michelle was a nomad. She was practiced, and she finally had the chance to choose her own freedom, no matter the cost. Michelle stepped into a roadside gas station somewhere in Florida. She ran her fingertips across the items hung in row two, scissors, and hair dye. All by herself, Michelle stepped into this gas station's bathroom. 30 minutes later, someone else emerged in her place, blonde now instead of brunette, found instead of lost. She would call herself Liza Pendragon. And Liza was not just committing halfway. In fact, this transformation was a psychological fallout of Michelle Thiers' campaign of lies. She had built a second life for herself online and now existed in duality, the outwardly presented self and the private one. In Michelle's case, use of the internet and then her affair with Diamond cultivated a very strong foundation for her private self. Instead of coming clean, she always doubled down. Now that her private self's well-being was thrown into crisis following Diamond's conviction and her indictment, another psychological shift took place. Dissociation. Simply put, Michelle decided it was time to phase out her old outward self and give herself over completely to her private persona. Liza was a psychological extension of Michelle's online persona, married brunette. The virtual became real. There are many types of dissociative disorders. They almost always function as a mental self-defense mechanism against trauma and involve a cleaving of identity, but they take different forms. In the case of Michelle Thier and Liza Pendragon, 
The closest fit is a mild but persistent depersonalization disorder. For years, Michelle just had not felt right in her life. This dissatisfaction led her into a cycle of lies. She was emotionally distant from her marriage, and then, in the aftermath of the shooting, distant from Marty's death. People experiencing depersonalization disorder experience a lack of control in their own actions and a feeling of general helplessness. This could explain why someone involved in murder, like Michelle, could simply flee from it. She left behind any previous moral framework from her old sense of identity. Her family picked up on this strange behavior, and Michelle herself floated through life, caught between the truth and the lie. But the trauma of the indictment gave her an excuse to break from this purgatory and be reborn. By June 1, 2002, Liza had signed a lease in Lauderdale-by-the-Sea and was dating a new man named Dana Horton. He was only 25 and didn't ask any tough questions. He was just happy to have someone like Liza, someone who knew what she wanted out of life. She spent her days writing letters back to her family with no return address, sending instructions on how to tie up loose ends in her old life. On July 3rd, 2002, Liza secretly visited a cheap plastic surgeon. When she came home to Dana, her face appeared swollen and mangled. She told him she was in a car accident. Then, using a public phone, Dana called up Tom, Michelle's father. When it became clear who the call was really from, Tom hung up. Liza Pendragon should have let the past lie because this one slip-up call was traced by the police. The police came for Michelle Thier. Instead, they found Liza Pendragon. Liza refused to admit she knew anything about her previous identity, even as all pretense dissolved around her. The police searched the apartment and found books on living off the radar and copies of fake IDs. Still, she would not give up. Somewhere, deep inside this new persona, Michelle Thier still believed this. They were wrong. She was innocent. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. Instead of jail, Michelle was taken to the hospital in handcuffs due to her shoddy plastic surgery. Her desire to flee her old self had left permanent scars. The woman previously known as Michelle Thier took one last flight back to North Carolina in 2003 after a long extradition process. With Michelle in debt for over $80,000, the court appointed an attorney for her. She rejected any plea deal and finally went to trial on September 27, 2004. Psychologist Dr. Moira Artigas was brought in to defend Michelle on the basis of mental dissociation. Artigas highlighted that Michelle was unstable due to the constant changes in location during her marriage to Marty. In this scenario, Diamond was the manipulator who toyed with Michelle's vulnerability and then pinned the murder on her while she was suffering PTSD from Marty's death. As for Diamond himself, even after all these years, 
He refused to testify against Michelle, but this refusal did nothing to stem the tide. The jury saw that Michelle was the primary manipulator here, not John Diamond. On December 3rd, after a month-long trial, 33-year-old Michelle Thier was sentenced to life in prison without parole, just like her former lover. To this day, she maintains her innocence, telling anyone who asks that she was a woman wronged by the police, prosecutors, press, and most of all, by John. This was not supposed to be her life. This was not supposed to be her fate. But now, at the very least, Michelle Thier could finally stop running. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Michelle and Marty Thier, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Officer's Wife, a true story of unspeakable betrayal and cold-blooded murder by Michael Fleeman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us, if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskin, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Jack Bintel. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>